Today I welcome Dr. Timothy Powers, Headmaster at Pinkerton Academy in the United States. In this episode, I discuss what makes a great student experience, developing an agile school culture, running innovative school programs, as well as ideas on the future school. I want to talk about student experience because that's a massive part of education. What do you consider to be a good student experience and what indicators are there that this is being achieved? You know, the experience, it, it all culminates with graduation and getting to that point. But the learning, the growth, the ups and downs that students go through throughout their time, you know, the academic successes and also the social aspects of it. So there's so much more than just going to classes and taking your, your math, your English, your science, social studies, all those classes trying different ones. You know, we have a wide variety of classes. So seeing students that get excited about a different path or trying to take a class or seeing, you know, maybe this is something that interests me, it helps with the student experience. But then seeing them, seeing them struggle and seeing them overcome the struggles to whether it's earn a good grade or to be able to be in position to take a particular class, you know, seeing that ups and downs throughout their time. For indicators, I mean, you always have the data, you have the grades, you can look at that, you know, getting to the, the graduation point. But there's also a lot of intangibles, uh, you know, looking at the co-curriculars and how are those connected to the classroom. So there's obviously there's the athletics, then there's other clubs, and then there's clubs that are tied directly to classes. So seeing what kind of participation rates are going on there. And I think the other part, too, is looking at our campus before and after school in particular, because like, the bell ring and then the campus is, you know, is empty and no one's here. Then there isn't that connection. There isn't that student experience. But when the end of the school day ends, there's still a lot of students that are here because they're involved in different things. They come back for events. So sometimes some of that's hard to quantify in a particular number, but you get the sense and the feeling that the students are connected to the school and to the community. And, and that all plays into their whole student experience. And do you think Pinkerton Academy does anything different in terms of the experience? Do you just put it at the front of how you talk about it? Because, you, you know, an experience is a feeling. It's something that you feel as you do it. It's just not anything else. So is there something special that you guys do? I think we, all, we always just say, like, is it good for kids? Is it good for students? And if the answer is yes, then let's find a way to make it work. And if it's, the answer is no, then what's the right question to be asking to have that yes answer? So all of the decisions and everything ties back to the student experience and to their learning and to their opportunities. And we're very fortunate here. We have an amazing faculty and staff that put the students first and really work hard with them. Uh, we have a very supportive board of trustees that really support the mission and the vision and the work that we all do. Um, and then surrounded by just a great team that, that really does it. So at the end of the day, it, it is what's best for students. Um, and that's always is what is driving us and helping them to grow and to learn. And how does your curriculum and the co-curricular program support the diverse needs of, of your students? Part of it's the variety, the variety that we offer and the individualization that occurs within the classroom to meet those different student needs. Because there, you know, there's some that are really struggling in a particular area and some that really excel in a particular area. So finding ways to meet them where they are and get them to move forward and get to that next level is something that's done on a daily basis, uh, not just by the types of course, even within a course and the level that's offered by the faculty and staff. Part of it also too is, is listening to our students. So right now we have, I think we have over 70 clubs and activities in that it's every year there's at least five or six new clubs that are proposed by students because there's things they're interested in. So you know, we've had everything from a, a Harry Potter Quidditch club uh, where the students got together and they played Quidditch. 
this uh, Super Smash Brothers Melee Club where they get together and they do some gaming and that to ones where they want to talk about philosophy and thought and things like that to different activities and athletics and that. So part of it is really just a continual evolution uh, year over year with what are the things that they're interested in and how are we offering those experiences and meeting their needs and making sure that they're connected to an adult year. They know that they have the space to enjoy themselves, to learn, to better themselves and, and what the effect is going to be on our community. And how do you think schools can best balance these offerings and then accommodate all the different needs of the students? Because it's a broad range of skills, interests and abilities as resourcing. Obviously, how do you do it, not just in terms of space, but in terms of maybe sort of adult uh, teacher support? And then how do you get them to think about the different options. I love the idea that you say, well, just come with an idea. I mean, how do you manage this balance? It's definitely a challenge because there's the, the wide variety of needs and, and likes and that. So I think part of it is is always looking at the future and where are things headed to make sure that we're working towards that. But then with the ideas pieces, it's not just the, you know the student comes up with an idea and, and say, okay, here's my idea. And then we have to figure it out. Part of it's working with them and saying, like, you have this idea that's great. Who's going to support you and who's going to work with you? So finding a a faculty member that could be the advisor for the club and then them coming up with the proposal, the idea and thinking it through and, you know, helping them, you know, the guidelines, like this is the information we need to be able to say, yes, it's a go coming up with that as part of their process so that they are able to propose the club or even looking at our courses in that we, you know, we have a new course proposed by that come from students, they come from faculty and staff. And then um, as we go through the approval process, have the various stakeholders that are involved in it. And then looking at, you know, what's the impact? So if it's, you know, geared towards a particular level or or group of students, like how are we making sure that we're not excluding students because of their abilities? So how can we make it challenging for those that it needs to challenge, but then also inclusive so that any student would someday have the ability to take the path to get to those classes or those offerings? I love it when schools come up with new and innovative programs and you have something called the Concussion Chalk Talk Program. Can you tell us a little bit about this, how it started? What is it? It started, gosh, probably about 10, 12 years ago where concussions really became, um, you know, more information about them. And it was really revolved around athletics and the return to play and the protocols and that. And then part of what we were seeing at that time, too, was, you know, it was not only the athletes that were getting concussed and then helping them to return to play, but then other students in activities or um, just weekend events or things like that, you know, were getting concussions. And then they're coming back into class after having a concussion on the weekend and they go into uh, the band room for their second period and everyone's playing music and then just have you know, pounding headaches and, and things like that, that just, it's not working. So we sat down and looked and said, how can we return these students to learning? So what's that process look like? So we looked at our athletic return to play process and, and mirrored it that way and having a gradual return to learn. So that way, as the student heals, they're able to do a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's not a, you know, forcing them right back in that first day, go through all your classes and that, and then it just prolongs the concussion that they've suffered. So it's definitely a gradual piece. They have a space that they can go to, they check in, a person that's in charge of the room, and they meet with the student, they go through the schedule where it is that they have to work, they provide that space that allows them to be able to decompress and get the, the setting that they need for how they're feeling, be able to work on things. And then if they can go to a class, they go to a class and they come back 
And then they're also checking in with the teachers and, you know, filling out a better or worse index, you know, each day was you know, with the students. So that way there's that data to see um, and the connection that can be made with the school counselor and the family. So that way it's that whole wraparound approach to them. So, you know, the idea is that we're going to get them back in the classroom as quickly as possible, but in the most safest and reasonable and responsible manner. So that way they're, they're able to continue their learning. It's a great initiative. Um, I can't help but think I mean, it feels very niche. I mean, it feels like it, it only affects a few students. Is it your experience that there's actually more students that this happens to more regularly? And by offering it, you're addressing a hidden issue that people really aren't aware of. It definitely ebbs and flows like the number of students that are involved in the room throughout the year. But I think it's also opened the doors to communications with the families. So you know, in the past, maybe we get a note saying that uh, student so-and-so has suffered a concussion or, or something happened or someone notices something in the classroom, like the teachers are really great. They, they see something, the student's off and that, and then they'll send a note to their administrator or their counselor and be like, I, I don't know what's going on with, with student uh, so-and-so today. Like something's not right, peeling things back and saying, okay, well, this is what happened and this is why. So having that communication with our families and sharing the information about it puts it in the forefront. So when something happens, we're able to make that connection right away to get that student in the right spot and in return there. So it's definitely helped between you know family, parents, community communications and with the students and then getting more information or getting those students in the room and, and through that process sooner as opposed to after they've suffered it for a week or so. And then later on getting in or finding out you know months later that they had a concussion. And now this is why for a you know, a two, three week span, like their grades really just dropped and their performance dropped. And it's like, well, you know, what was going on at that time? And it's definitely helped. These sort of niche programs that are put on, have you, I suppose there's two things I'm thinking. One is, do you make it available to kids that maybe can't afford, you know, aren't at your school, but again, in the local community to access this? And then on the bigger level going, is there something you could package up and actually offer this as a really good program that could be lifted in and dropped into another school and go, do you know what, this worked for us. If you follow these guidelines, you could have your own chalk talk program within School B. Yeah. So we, when we first rolled it out, we were part of an initiative. There were 10 schools in New Hampshire that took part of it and worked with uh, the Brain Institute in New Hampshire and, and Dartmouth and really started to, to build and, and work with the program. And we've just really stuck and kept to it and made it a, one of our pillars as part of our student wraparound approaches and that. So in our area there, we don't have other students that come to us for that, but it's definitely things that we, we have and would be willing to share with others and say, like, this is the approach, this is what we do with it. Because it's not a, you know, a Pinkerton Academy only thing and we're the only ones that can do it. It's what's best for kids and what's best for students and their learning. So you know, anyone that's interested in it, we'd be more than happy to, to share. This is what we do and this is our approach and you know, maybe it works or maybe there are elements of it that works for, for others, but uh, it's something that we feel very strongly and passionate about. So uh, we've seen success with it and others could have success with it as well. This forms a big part of well-being and well-being we've seen become headline news and become really important and has been embedded in not just education, but beyond education. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Getting kids and students to learn in an environment that they feel well and safe. Concussion is a very physical thing that you've got to go through and adjust. But there's all the other bits as well that people struggle to learn that by adopting a similar approach and going, I understand this, 
how can we make sure you thrive? Is that something you've looked at, explored, and do you do? Yeah. So we actually have another program we call the Bright Program, where we actually had met with the school in Massachusetts that was offering and running it. And it, because we found that we had a lot of students that long term absences. Um, so something to do with, uh, you know, mental health, just anxiety, or they were, they were hospitalized or something. So they were out of school for a period of time and coming right back into school and the full throttle was just not ready for them. Then we needed something to get them here on campus. Because once we got them here, then we could work with them and we can gradually get them back into school. So we've added the Bright program as well as a part of that. So really working with students that have things going on with their mental health and that and wanting to work with them and, and work with the, the mental health providers in our community. So that way we know that they have a safe place to go and that we really want to work with them and get them back on our campus to gradually get back into the learning process that we don't want them just not here for a month, two months. And then just say when they come back, hey, great to see you, go to class. They have that spot and that they have a place to go and we can slowly get them back into the rhythm of it with the hopes that they're going to fully go back to the full schedule at some point. And if not, then we work with them to to do a reduced day and and different schedules there. And we also have added an alternative learning community, our ALC program, where we had contracted it out, where it was a smaller, shortened day and different elements of it that we've now taken in-house where we have students that are in a smaller setting. So they're on campus, but they're on on the opposite side of our main campus. So they're still part of our community. They still can take some of our CTE classes and our classes and that, but they are in a setting where it's they're going to be one of 15 students with uh, two teachers and a program para that works with them on all their classes to get them to either get caught back up with their credits or to work with them through uh, some things that they have going on because they just need a different setting for, it could just be a short period of time, or it could be a semester, it could be a year before they rejoin the main campus and that. So it's definitely been a thing where we've looked at multiple facets and multiple ways that we can connect with the students and get them in that safe environment that works for them. Yeah, it's fantastic the programs you put on because we know, again, through published research that, you know, happy, well kids perform better. Again, I don't think you need published research to feel that. You just know that if someone is feeling safe, they're feeling comfortable, they're well, and they're allowed to thrive, feel excited about learning, they will perform. It's great that you offer that wraparound kind of support in your programs. It also dovetails into culture. And I know that you've really expressed the importance of a school culture. What kind of school culture do you foster at Pinkerton Academy? Culture is important because that's you know, the, the heartbeat of what's going on. And we have a, definitely have a student-centered school culture. Uh, and also an employee, faculty, staff-centered culture as well that, you know, the focus is on the students and, and getting them to the end goal of graduation and give them that valuable experience there. So we, you know, focus on on our students, but then also focusing on our employees and making sure that they're in a good spot and then they have the tools and what they need to be able to work with their students. So you know, we, can all, we can focus everything on our students to give them the best opportunities, but if we don't have the faculty and staff to run those and to teach them and to work with them, then all those opportunities are going to go for naught. So it's a definitely a balance between creating a school culture that is student-centered and uh, employee-centered and, you know, family. Like that's, we spend a lot of time here together. So we have to, you know, have a spot where we, we enjoy it. We love what we're doing. Some we love, and sometimes we don't always love everyone that we're working with, but having those relationships and those things that grow throughout the year and our time here, I think is important. Professional development plays a massive part in ensuring that the culture is, is supported and it can grow. What kind of professional development do you put on at Pinkton for your staff? We call it now professional learning. So because we're all learning, we're part of the school environment and that. So we have a professional learning series that we implement 
throughout the school year. And we tie it year over year together and our dean of faculty runs it and it's our care series. And at times we bring in experts um, because there may be an expert or topic that we need someone from the outside to come in, whether it's, you know, an expert on um, a particular topic or or a legal that's going to come in and talk through some different changes in laws and that. But what we also rely a lot on is our own experts here on campus so that we can showcase the talents that they have and the successes that they've had in and out of the classroom. And what does that look like? So that way, throughout the year, if I'm struggling on one aspect, maybe it's a you know particular lesson plan or a particular type of assessment, or maybe it's working on a Harkness model in, within the classroom, I don't have to try and find out who was that expert that we brought in. It's I can go to the colleague down a couple doors down or someone in my department and have that conversation and get that immediate feedback and peer-to-peer coaching. We really worked on that piece, which has all come from uh, the choice and talking to our faculty and staff and surveying them about what are their needs and what are the things that they're looking for. Because you know, we can put together a great you know, professional learning series, but then if it has nothing to do with what they're interested in or what their needs are, it's going to go over like a lead balloon. So we want to make sure that we're listening to them and we're providing the opportunities and the information that, that are the things that they need because it's what are they seeing daily in the classroom and working with the students. We talked about students. We talked about teachers and faculty being part of the culture. What about parents? You know, they have this other pivotal role to ensure that A, they're part of the culture, that they also advocate the culture. How do you bring them along and how important is it that they're brought along to embody what your culture stands for? I mean, the parents in that films are critical because they're it's their child. If we just ignored the parents, then we're we're ignoring a big stakeholder within our community in that. So Part of it is, you know, communicating with them on a regular basis, having nights and information nights that they can come to that we can share all the information and, you know, whether it's formal presentations, but then also there's a lot of informal stuff. I think the one thing we learned going through the pandemic was the importance of communicating and sharing information and doing that on a regular basis and weekly basis that we've continued every week on Friday. There's a head of school, a blog post that goes out to our community and it shares just different things, you know, whether it's things that are coming up or information that's been shared by uh, another uh, school member, whether it's an administrator or a staff member, about a particular topic or successes. You know, these are students that have succeeded or faculty that have succeeded in different ways. So sharing that and then listening to them when they respond. So, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to send a message out and to get responses back, whether it's, you know, hey, this is great, or, you know, what about these topics or these things, or how are you engaging in, in these ways? And, and that's so taking that and then, you know, how does it fit within or how do we make sure that we're sharing all the information so that they know what is available for their child throughout their time with us? You mentioned the pandemic and obviously the, the effect that that had around the world. What kind of ripples and echoes have you, have you found since then? And you know, how are you adjusting and how is your community? Obviously, it was a very challenging time. You know, there was a lot of bad things that happened. And there are some silver linings, some things that we've learned that are positive for the way that we changed and, and have done things differently. I think we've came together as a community to work and to help each other get through all of that. So that was very nice to see that to that aspect of it. And I think there's just the communication piece, the use of technology in, in different ways definitely helped advance many, many aspects of what we do. And then just, you know, how do we prepare for the future and what are different ways and, and fast forwarding things and looking at it, you know, when we changed our schedule. We used to be an eight period a day and we had talked about it for years, decades about going to a block schedule and what is it like in that. And it was just, you know, one of those where committees and then research and 
conversations and all that. And it just, the pandemic was the trigger. And we're just like, you know, we're going to it. Like we're doing it. We have to, we've grown and learned within it. And we've made some strides and some changes coming out of it that we think has benefited our students and our families and our community. And like, we've added a flex period, which is essentially like a small advisory. So, you know, every one of our faculty members, myself included, we have a, a group of 12 or 13 students that we meet with every day. Um, and it gives us the opportunity to connect with them and help them. And then it also gives them the opportunity to get extra help during the school day in the areas that they struggle. So, or just need to make up an assessment or that, things like that. So it's definitely given us the, the insight in that we can make changes a lot quicker than we were making them and that we are nimble. And as much as we, we have long traditions and, and long history, and there's a lot of value and good that comes from that, but there's also the ability to meet the needs here and now and not wait. These students are with us for four years. So if we wait, they're going to graduate and be gone by the time we've actually made a change and we've lost that opportunity with them. It's really brilliant to hear that you use the Petri dish of the lockdown to make change. I think it was a perfect opportunity. And a lot of the schools I do speak to, you know, use that opportunity because you had to try things and you weren't going to be blamed for trying and it not working. And actually, there's lots of schools like yours who have embedded the change and actually it's become better. So you've used it as an opportunity. And then maybe moving forward, there are things that you could be doing as going, actually, this is good. We need to keep looking at change. So you're relevant and fit for purpose for the future. I'm going to ask you a final question. I'm, I'm asking all my guests this season. and. I want you to look into your crystal ball. Tell me what your future of education would look like in 2050. That's a great question. And in thinking about it, like 2050s, you know, 17, 18 years away. And, and I kind of think about that. It's, you know, this is my 21st year in education. So it's kind of almost like that midpoint of, you know, getting to 2050 and that. So the initial thoughts look back at the early 2000s and what were we doing and what was it like and where are we now and just some of the advances and, some very subtle ones that, you know, you look back and say, okay, in 02, we were doing this and now we're doing this. Like, wow, that's a big change, but it was very gradual. And if you weren't paying close attention to it, you didn't notice it. So I think like in 2050, there's going to be a lot more advances. And when we look back, we're going to say, wow, that was the big change. Yeah, I think that technology is going to just be through the roof with where we're at now. But I think there's that human element that still has to be a big part of it. And I think that's one thing that we learned from the pandemic is as great as technology is and as much as we can do with technology, Without that human element, it doesn't all work. Even as AI and things like that get better and, and can work and you can learn from pieces like that, it's not replacing that teacher, that human in the classroom that's working with the students and also the students being within the classroom. So you know, 20 years from now, could we have a classroom where we have students that are across the globe working on a project as opposed to just students within a classroom? Yeah, I definitely think we'll be there. We'll be doing that kind of thing. But I think we're going to have that human element and that teacher in the classroom and the connection between the students, that's still so important because as great as technology is in that, there's still that social aspect because we're social beings. So we're, we're still going to have that element and that piece that we have to learn and grow and, and gain through as we continue to move forward. So I think it will be very interesting. It will be very um, important and, and great to see some of these advances and where we're going to be in 2050. But I do think there's still going to be that human element and that in-person component of it all. The human is the big part of it. And we ignore the human at our own peril by thinking technology is going to save us in some way, or all it's doing is making things more efficient and they're making things more immersive, quicker, faster, accessible. But you know, when you're teaching, I suppose it's, it's being able to bring in the right technology to augment learning that the human still needs to do. So 
I do hope we still have people and humans in classrooms. I agree. I think having the idea that you can get inspired by anybody around the world is something quite exciting. Um, so I can get excited, inspired on different subjects from different schools on any part of the planet, but you still need tutoring, right? It's still, okay, you've inspired me, but what's the practicalities? And I think great schools will adapt to that model. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be an interesting, well, it's going to be an interesting few years, let alone the next 20 to 30. It certainly will be. Thank you ever so much for finding the time today to join the Inspiring Schools podcast. You're welcome. Thank you, Simon. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.